After the Time Out podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches talking basketball on the court, off the court, and anything in between. On today's episode of the After the Time Out podcast, we sit down with Coach Stephanie Kuzmanik, head girls basketball coach at Leiden High School in Franklin Park, Illinois. Coach Kuzmanik also coaches AAU basketball for All In Athletics. Prior to being head coach at Leiden, Coach Kuzmanik played at Carthage College and Wheeling High School. We talked to Coach Kuzmanik about becoming a head coach at a very young age, being from a basketball family, creating a positive culture in your program, what it takes to play at the collegiate level, and timeout development. Enjoy the show. Coach, it's awesome to have you on on today. Uh, we've been looking forward to it all week. Uh, we've been just giving all of our coaches that come on a chance to maybe highlight what they've been doing in their program now that the season started. Um, maybe some things that you were doing in the off off season because um, we had a long off season, right during during COVID. I, I think we've me and John have kind of thought that's a valuable thing to talk to other coaches about because you can always pick up something and maybe use it down the road. Um, so, you know, just kind of what's going on in your program? What were you doing to prepare even when we weren't allowed to play? Um, things like that. Well, you know, I think when this COVID stuff first started going on in the spring, obviously there were a lot of unknowns, but I think most of us thought that maybe we missed camp, but we'd be back in the fall, no problem. So I definitely didn't expect it to go on as long as it did. Um, and when they told us we couldn't have summer camp, you know, I'm sure we, a lot of teams did the same thing, but uh, we did a lot of virtual workouts. Um, I met with a lot of the kids a couple of times a week. We would do ball handling and some shooting for kids who maybe had hoops in their driveway. Um, try to do some just team meetings, you know, not even with the ball, just to really talk and discuss things and, um, you know, help with their mental health that way, just to see other people on a screen. Um, so we did things like that. And then finally, by fall, we were lucky enough to at least have some contact days. Um, and Thank goodness for those, because we definitely needed every single one of those days. Um, so really just trying to check in and keep the kids updated about what was going on and really give them some hope and something to look forward to, because I think a lot of kids really checked out mentally because they thought, well, there's not going to be a season. So why am I going to come on this Zoom workout? Why am I going to meet with the team? Like, we're not going to play this year. So I think trying to keep them bonded and engaged so that in the chance where we did come back, that they were kind of ready to go not just physically, but mentally too. So, you know, let's kind of transition. So, you know, Todd and I are both obviously head coaches, but, you know, I've, I've known your family for a long time and, and you graduated from college as a player and basically became a head coach immediately. So, you know, what were, what were the hardest things to do to transition from, from being a player to coach? And then kind of what were some of the challenges and things you learned in that very first year at the front of the bench instead of on the court. You know, it's funny because I was still student teaching while my job at Leiden started. So I got my job and I was supposed to be at summer camp working the Leiden basketball camp the first week of June. And I was student teaching up in Kenosha um, by Carthage and they don't get out till the middle of June. So I remember it was an issue and my professor at Carthage I don't want to say threatened, but almost threatened to fail me from the student teaching program because they said I couldn't miss 
any days of student teaching at the end of the year. So I was kind of in a pickle because, you know, this was my real job. I just signed a contract to start working. I need to get down there. And obviously I was excited to come meet my players and see what the program would look like. Um, but I still had responsibilities to student teach. So uh, it was really difficult. I was going in between Kenosha and Northlake, just, you know, trying to go to class with my seminar, plus student teach, plus coach on the weekend. So it was kind of crazy. It was a lot of fun, but um, it was definitely a difficult transition. I mean, you guys know playing at a high level for four years in college, you, you have the mindset of a college player. So I was super excited and, uh, you know, really grateful that Leiden gave me an opportunity to be a head coach at 22. I think they know there would be some growing pains, you know, regardless of what level of player I was, you know, I had some coaching experience before, but obviously not to run a whole program. So I think for me, it was just really hard to adjust to the high school skill level um, because I came in there as this young, hungry coach. And I was so excited. I had all these great ideas and I was like, I'm so excited to run a certain offense. And I had all these plays and sets and defensive schemes. And then you meet your team and you're like, okay, we need to step it. We need to take it back a little bit and, and figure out what they can do. So I think that it took me a few years to realize that as a coach, you need to cater your offense and your schemes to your players instead of trying to fit your players into what kind of schemes you run. You know, I, I think that's something that I struggled with and I had to really scale back my ideas and find out what they could do and what they couldn't do and what I could implement to make them successful. I think that was probably the biggest thing for me. Okay, so you you come from, and John, we talked about this yesterday. I didn't know this about you, but you come from a basketball family. Like all your siblings played, played at a high level. Um, what were some of the things that led you and your sisters to success? Um, and, you know, like you kind of started it, right? I, I believe you're the oldest, so you kind of started started that path. So kind of talk about how that was like, you know, with your younger sisters. And then um, you know, was there ever, was there ever pressure or was it just a friendly, you know, sibling competition? Honestly, I have to credit my parents 100% on getting us into basketball and keeping it going. Um, especially my mom, she coached us all growing up. So my parents actually ran the Wheeling Feeder program for 10 years. Um, so they took it over and they put, I mean, blood, sweat and tears literally into that program. And um, I think that's what kind of got us going. And ever since that, I mean, we fell in love with the game as well. So I think that kind of just escalated it. And obviously that whole feeder program was what really set a foundation for us to be successful later on in high school and our high school team. Um, I would say, I don't think there was pressure for me um, because I was the oldest. I don't know if that, you know, is surprising or not, but I think because I was the first one to do everything, there wasn't really an expectation. You know, I was the first one, obviously, to get into the feeder program. And then since I was the first one doing everything, I started a little later. I didn't play AAU till after my freshman year. That was my first year of AAU, whereas my younger sisters, you know, started in fifth, sixth grade. Um, I was the first one to play in college. So we didn't know much about the recruiting process or how it worked or how to respond to coaches, how to find an AAU team. So um, I think my parents definitely pushed us to uh, play as much as we can and, and be successful. But I don't think they were to the point where um, they put pressure on us to be good, you know? So I think that was like a good medium. And 
I can't speak for my sisters, but um, I, I think there was probably maybe more pressure possibly on them because we set that bar really high. And, you know, we got, we were the first team to at Wheeling to go down state and, and whatnot. So I think maybe it put more pressure on them that they kind of felt like they had to continue that and set that high bar. So I can't speak for them, but um, it was definitely my parents that got us into it. And we just all kind of fall in love with the game. And now we're a crazy basketball family and March madness. And those things are bigger in our house than Christmas Eve, honestly. So we look forward to those kind of things. Uh, the real question is though, who, who's got the, the one-on-one record? I was waiting for that. Hold, you know what? The, this is a one-on-one record. I will say we have had some super intense one-on-one-on-one driveway games growing up. And honestly, my sisters hated playing against me, not because I was, you know, better or worse than them, just because I'm by far the most competitive. You know, if you ask my sisters, like I will pull shirts, push them to the floor, play dirty, do whatever I have to do to get the W. So I think they would get frustrated because I was older and I I didn't take it easy on them. I beat up on them like crazy, you know, and I, I, I tried to push them in that way. So um, we, we played a lot of driveway games and things like that. And, you know, it, it's interesting because we are all three different players. You know, I played point guard, so I did a lot more driving kickouts and assists was kind of my thing in college. Um, my middle sister, Kelly, she kind of played more of like a three, four. She was, uh, you know, a little bit bigger. She was a post kind of. Um, and then Deanna, the youngest one, she was like a pure shooter. She's phenomenal shooter. So we all kind of bring different things to the table. So, you know, one-on-one was interesting. So we should, we should never go up against you guys in a three on three. Uh, You know what? I, I, we always joke with my mom that we're really upset that um, they didn't have Deanna like a year or two earlier. I, I, Kelly and I played two years together um, in high school and then Deanna and Kelly played one year together. And we just think it would be, it would have been awesome if we could have all three been in the starting lineup together at once. No doubt. So let's kind of, we'll go kind of go through your playing and then, and then into your coaching experience. But I know I'm sure you took things from your playing experience into coaching. So obviously when you were at Wheeling, Wheeling's not known as a basketball powerhouse, as you and I very well know, but what were the characteristics of your guys' team during your state run? Like take out skill, obviously, you know, we could go through all the, the skilled players, but what were some other characteristics that led to that team being so successful? You know, that team was so special just because of the level of dedication. And again, you know, I really think that it goes back to that foundation from the feeder program that, again, I, I, I really have to accredit my parents for that, for, for kind of building that. I mean, there was times my mom would go into local middle schools and, and pick kids out, you know, and, and try to get them to join basketball. Like, as you guys know, if you look up that state team, there's no secret. Ashley Wilson was, you know, one of the best players maybe the MSL has ever seen. You know, she was phenomenal. She didn't pick up a ball till sixth grade. My mom walked in to a gym at Holmes Middle School and called her mom and said, hey, we want this kid to play feeder. And I think because of that, we had played together for so long um, at Wheeling that I think we had such a genuine friendship with everybody off the court so I think by the time we got to high school, we just trusted each other so much and we wanted to win together. Um, so it was just such an unselfish team and everybody was really happy, you know, for other people when, you know, it didn't matter who was leading score or these things, we just wanted to win. And um, I remember when we were in maybe fifth or sixth grade, every year my parents would take like a 12 passenger van down to ISU and take the whole feeder team and we would go watch the state games. 
and we'd watch when Buffalo Grove made it down to state mm-hmm. when they were older than us. And we'd watch the Bowling Brooks and the, and the Whitney Youngs. And I think that just inspired us to want to have that same goal. You know, we watched all these kids from fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And I remember in like seventh grade, looking at my mom and just being like, I, I want to play here one day. I want to make it down to this court. And I think that fueled our fire. Uh, when we were juniors or I was a junior, that was when we had that 09 team that went down state. I mean, we were like 33 and two that year. Mm-hmm. And anytime we did lose, I mean, it, we treated it like a college team. I mean, we watched film on our own. And at that time, huddle and those things weren't even out. We would go scout. If we lost the game, we had a group chat with the captains. We would say, hey, let's go and watch film. Let's go in and shoot. Let's go in and in condition. Like we didn't even need, and we, I loved Shelly Legal. She was an awesome coach. Um, I love playing for her and she didn't even need to tell us. I think she'll say that too. She didn't need to get into us. If we ever lost, we were just as hard on ourselves and we would come together and try to figure out how we could improve for the next time. So that was really kind of our goal. All right, so let's let's kind of transition to your your college playing and and how that goes into your uh, uh, student athletes today. Uh, so I, I really feel like I don't know if how it's changed, but they don't necessarily kids don't necessarily know as much of go, what goes into a typical college day, right? As a college athlete, I played college baseball uh, in the CCIW as well. I was at was at Elmhurst, um, and you you played at such a high level. You played in a great program, a great conference. Um, I just, what was your typical day like as a college athlete in season? And obviously you can come at it from the AAU perspective as well. Um, just, you know, I don't know if they, athletes like, I want to play in college, but they don't necessarily realize whatever level you're at, what goes into a typical day. Oh man. (laughs) Um, I just playing college is just, it's draining and obviously physically, when you guys that know that when you play college athletics, I think your body ages like 10 years in those couple of years that you're there. Um, by senior year, it's not like, oh, you're hurt. It's like, oh, what's wrong with you? I have tendon and I'm playing on a broken foot. It's always something. So I think that kids expect it to be physically demanding and I think they expect it to be a lot of time. I don't think every kid understands or is ready for the emotional you know, part of that. And it's very emotionally draining Um, I think a lot of kids have trouble with resilience because they were all the best player at their high school. And then you go to college and it's very hard to get playing time, especially when you are a freshman, sophomore and kids are used to playing, you know, 30 out of 32 minutes of a high school game. And then they get to college and they're on the bench. And you have to remember that every single person on that college roster was a star on their high school team. And I think a lot of people have trouble accepting that. And then, you know, this is what I explained to my AAU and my high school kids that we send to college is that you have two options when you get there, either you let it get to you and then you just kind of quit by sophomore year because you couldn't handle it. And it was too, you know, taxing on you, or you say, okay, I'm not the best right now. What do I need need to do to get there? And if you're not willing in college to put in the extra time, I mean, it's not enough high school, You can play some AAU, you can show up, you can probably dominate a little bit. College, it's not that way. Everybody's bigger, faster, stronger, smarter. And, you know, regardless, like you said, division one, two, three, JUCO, it doesn't matter. It's all still a much higher level than high school. So um, I think you have to really be willing to put that extra time in. And 
Um, you know, I also think there is a big misconception with division three athletics, especially, you know, I chose obviously to go division three and we were, you know, obviously um, ranked nationwide and we had transfers on our team that played division one. And, you know, I'm not trying to compare it. I'm not saying obviously that division three is a higher level of competition. Division one definitely is, but I think people think that if I go D3, it's going to be really easy and I'll play and I don't have to work as hard. And, um, you know, we, maybe we're not playing division one, but we're working just as hard and just as much. I mean, in preseason, we had three days. We were, we had a 5 a.m. wake up call. We were hitting the track. We were running wind sprints on the track. Then we'd go to class. Then we'd have to lift at like 11. Then we go back to class. Then we'd have open gyms at night and, um, you know, conditioning agility. So we're working just as hard and just as often. The difference is we're not getting paid to do it. So in my eyes, sometimes that's almost even more admirable. The fact that we're doing this for pure love of the game and we're putting our bodies and minds and all this through, you know, this exhausting season, just because we really, really love the game of basketball. So um, I think that uh, you just really have to be strong mentally and you have to make sure that you're putting in the time to get where you want to be. So let's kind of, you know, we kind of went through your playing career. Let, let's kind of go into coaching. So something Todd and I have both noticed, and, and I've been a big fan of just your positive culture and some of the things that you do. And, and so I'm just curious, you know, what are the key elements to your program culture that leads to your girls? You could tell your girls are close and it's a positive atmosphere. So what are some of the key elements to that? Um, I think that the biggest thing that has, you know, worked for us is just getting buy-in from every kid on the floor. You know, it's, it's common for your starters or maybe, you know, your top eight rotation, they're going to buy in for the most part. It's easy for them to be engaged because they're playing, they're getting minutes, you know, they're, they're following along. It's really hard to keep nine through 15 engaged when they might only get in a minute a game. They might not play for five games straight. And I think that's also where a lot of negativity comes in because I, you know, coaching girls, I don't know if the same for boys, but coaching girls, I know a lot of the drama comes from playing time and who's playing and who's not. And who does, who does coach like, who's coach going to play and these things. So as you know, John, yep. um, <laughs> So I think it's really important to um, try to build that buy-in with every kid one through 15. And if you watch my you know, high school varsity team play, we might not be the most talented team on the floor, but I would say that nine times out of 10, we are going to be the most energetic, the loudest, the hardest working, um, those kind of things. So that's something that I really, really push with them. Um, Cause you know, we don't have a lot of kids in the program if you know only a few in the entire program that play year round and play AU and are you know true ballers and, and love basketball and want to be there every second so I think it's super important to try to build that positive culture so that they want to be there um, and as you know you know if you're not winning a lot of games it makes it even harder for them to want to buy in and be there because it's tough to go back to back and play good teams and lose so I really try to stress with them that we're not worried about wins and losses. We're worried about us and bettering ourselves and improving our skills and playing to the best our, of our ability. You know, I, I told him, I don't care if, you know, we're not as talented, but we need to make sure that we're working harder than anybody on the floor at all times. 
So what let's go through now. Let's say you do have a kid who comes to you and is like, coach, I'm not playing or a, a kid that's negative or a kid that's disruptive to that culture. Kind of take us through like, what would you do with that player? I think it's really important to establish roles early on in the season. And I think a lot of the issues with playing time and whatnot sometimes come in because, you know, coaches tell every kid at the beginning of the season, oh yeah, you're all going to play, you know, you, this is, you're going to be here, you're going to be here. And kids hear that. And then if they don't play, it's a letdown and they're upset. So we try to be very honest with them at the beginning of tryouts and not in a harsh way, but just, Hey, you know, tell them straight up, Hey, this is your role. And it's a very important role. And sometimes your role might be to be an amazing practice player and get the starters ready. Sometimes your role is to score 20 points a game. Sometimes your role is to go in there for five minutes and face guard the best player on the other team. Um, but what we try to really implement is the fact that your role might be big or small, but every role is important, one through 15, every single one. And I think if you can get kids to buy into that and accept their role and do their role well and make sure that every kid kind of feels important, you know, to the team. I think that that really, really helps build that culture. And, you know, I, I really try to make it a point to not make it all about the starters and who's getting playing time. And, you know, I try to make sure that we're focusing on every kid, even if they're not getting playing time, because if they don't feel like they're part of the team, that's when that negativity comes in, you know? So we try to really establish their roles and we have um, preseason meetings with them when we start tryouts. And then we always do a mid-season meeting where we just kind of give players the floor and we say, hey, you let us know, what do you think you're doing well? What do you think you need to work on? What do you need to see from us as coaches? What can we do to help you be more successful? And I think when we um, you know, kind of do that for them, I think that that really makes them you know, kind of see that, hey, we're here for you guys. We're on the same team here. You know, I think sometimes kids don't get playing time and they see it as coach doesn't like me, coach doesn't want to give me a chance. And that thing, whereas, you know, we're all on the same team. We all have the same goal. We want to get better. We want to win games. And once I think we step back as coaches and say, hey, we're not perfect too, guys. You can tell us what you need from us and what's going to help you. I think they appreciate that a lot. I like the idea of the mid-season meeting. That's a yeah, good idea. we do some post-season meetings too. And yeah. um, as far as the closeness, we do a lot of team bonding activities um, throughout the season. And, you know, girls especially love those. But uh, one of the coolest things that we have started the last couple of years is we do an overnight lock-in every year um, over winter break. So the girls love doing that. It's a lot of fun. We practice at like 10 p.m. They come in at literally 10 p.m. Uh, we practice till like one in the morning and then they shower and get ready. We order a bunch of pizzas and people bring food. Um, and then we do a bunch of team bonding activities throughout the night. So we've done like scavenger hunts around the whole school. Um, we've done like Jeopardy. Sometimes we watch film, look at stats. We've done secret Santas. And uh, I mean, the first year that we were in the lock-in, kids brought like blankets and pillows. And one girl actually brought an entire queen mattress. <laughs> she was a total diva. Her dad came in and brought an entire queen mattress. Um, so that was the first year. And then after that, I, no one's brought a single pillow or blanket because we don't sleep. It's an all-nighter. We go from 10 p.m. till 7 a.m., make breakfast. Parents pick them up at 8 a.m. And um, we try to make sure too, when we do activities that we put kids that don't really talk together 
And I think that helps like separate the, you know, clickiness of their friends and put teams of kids who don't really talk. And I think that helps to kind of build trust between everybody, you know, from again, from one to 15, that's always our thing. One to 15, one to 15. So I want to talk about player development now, and we just talked about roles. So now we have those roles. Um, and obviously you have two different, I guess, sets of player development, right? You have the high school aspect um, and then you have the AAU aspect, which is very different. Um, first talk about your, your high school player development, maybe what's your process. Um, you know, what, what are the core skills you're looking for your kids to have? Um, you know, does it change or, you know, depending on your teams, things like that. Um, yeah. So for high school, I think you have to break down stuff, obviously a lot more because AAU players are used to, you know, they play all year round. So they probably have a little bit more knowledge and a lot of those AU kids have, you know, trainers and things like that. So um, for high school, we work a lot on skills, but also I think something that sometimes high school coaches don't always necessarily think about is just not only teaching skills like shooting mechanics and dribbling, but also concepts is a big one. Um, and I think that was something I learned through my last couple years of coaching is that I've started to take less time on teaching actual sets and plays and spending more time on concepts. So we do a lot of two on two, three on three, four on four breakdown drills in practice. And we work on, you know, we'll focus on a skill every day. So like today we're working on learning how to read screens and when to curl and when to slip the screen and when to actually roll and how to, you know, do those things. And we'll spend, you know, a ton of time and everything we do from like a shoot around drill to um, scrimmaging, everything will be around that skill. So we can really work on it. Or, you know, we'll take a, a day to teach how to set different types of screens because, you know, kids only set high ball screens, but what is a flex screen? I mean, we're teaching some concepts these kids have never heard of, teaching them how to set a UCLA screen. We've done an entire practice before on how to cut correctly. You know, a lot of teams run four and five out and it seems really easy pass and cut, but there's a difference between passing the ball and just putting your hand in the air and actually making a V cut or an in and out and getting in front of somebody and cutting with a purpose and things like that. So um, we have done, I started to do a lot more skill slash concept stuff. And I think it has helped tremendously because, you know, when I first got there, a lot of teams, you can just say, Hey, go four or five out and kids know how to play basketball and they know where to go. And, you know, when I first got to my high school team, that wasn't a possibility because kids didn't really know the game. So I think as I've spent more time teaching them how to just play and like when to cut, when to curl, when to do those things, I think it's makes it so much easier when I put in sets because they start to realize that there's all these different options out of sets. Okay. So let's bump that then to AAU. What now you get to AAU, you have those kids who are playing. Um, they have most likely they have that at least one or two really good skills. Mm -hmm. um, so what is, what is your process when you get to your girls for your AAU teams? That's fun. Um, you know, it, it's interesting with AAU because everybody in AAU plays a little bit different, you know, depending on where their high school is. And it's interesting too, because when I have my high school team, you know, everybody's playing the same way and there's the same expectation because they're my kids and I'm telling them what I want from them. Whereas, you know, you go to AAU and let's say I run something, you know, or I'm in some kind of offense and 
I have this girl from this high school and her coach is telling her always do this on a screen. And this girl from this high school, her coach is telling her something different. So I think um, that's the kind of the, the challenging part of AU is trying to mesh those kids, but it's fun. I mean, we go into training for AU and it is really high level. It's a lot of fun just to work on more advanced skills, you know, like not just going over, you know, shooting mechanics and ball handling, but teaching, you know, sometimes moves that these NBA guys are doing and teaching like split steps and pullbacks and different types of way to do step backs. So it's really fun. And, you know, the AU kids obviously are super engaged because they're deciding they're making an effort to be there. Um, so it's just fun to be able to kind of get into them and teach them some new stuff. And, you know, we'll jump in there too sometimes and scrimmage with them, which is always fun as well. So as Todd would say, let's kind of take away the fluff a little bit. So you talked about concepts and Todd and I are big on concepts and offense and defense and, and like you very less about like this set or that set or so kind of take us through like your key offensive concepts for your team, your high school team. Like what, what are you guys doing offensively at your core? Things might be tweaked every year based on personnel, of course, as we all do. But like, what are those key concepts for you? Uh, well, as you said, you know, it kind of depends on your team and notoriously the, the girls I've had have been, you know, we're obviously much more talented defensively. We're usually a pretty fast team. So a lot of our offense comes from our defense. So we really in uh, practice work a lot on like secondary break and transition and getting into an offense out of the fast break. Um, but for our high school team, I think like less is more keeping it simple has been successful. So, you know, different maybe quick hitters out of a five out or out of a four out set or out of like a four low set that they can just get into and, and kind of just play. So like I said, I think the concept helps because before we just run like a one hitter set and if it wasn't open, you know, they dribble back up to the top and say, set it up, set it up, try again. And I think now we're finally a little bit more advanced where we can run those sets. And then if the option's not there, it goes right into a five out or a four out and they have different options. So uh, we try to keep it simple. A lot of high ball screens with the post. Um, I'm, I, I like a lot of double screens. I like that. I think I definitely got that from Tim Bernero, my, my Carthage coach. He had some really nice high low sets. Um, but, you know, it kind of depends on personnel as well, because we are, you know, usually a pretty tiny team. It's not often that we get like a true post. Um, like right now we have, we don't have anybody six foot on the roster and we normally don't. So you know, I, I love like a good high low and stuff like that, but it's kind of difficult to run when you don't have a true post. So we like to go a lot of um, like five out. I, I play five guards a lot, honestly. That's the style of play I like to play and um, a lot of dribble drive type things with that. So then kind of take a, the new thing Todd and I have been really talking about lately is, is how much time do we spend on like that quote unquote special teams area out of bounds, yep. uh, sideline out of bounds, uh, you know, baseline out of bounds or those kind of things kind of take us through your philosophy on, on out of bounds plays and, and how much time do you spend in practice and, and kind of how do you teach those aspects? You know, I think that I, when I first started, I spent a lot more time on those and I don't know if that's good or bad. I just, I always feel like with high school, especially in this, you know, pandemic season, things go so fast. And as long as the season is in four months, I always feel like it's impossible to get through everything if you want to do it right. Like my first couple of years, I would just, you know, try to squeeze everything in as fast as I could put in the press, put in the zone, put in a man, put in sets, put in inbounds. And I felt like I started to realize that 
if I focus a little bit on, you know, picked two or three things that we could be really good at instead of just having all these options and trying to throw all these things at them. Um, I think that was a little bit hard for them. So I've, I've caught myself spending a little less time on inbounds and things like that. I don't know if that's, I, it's not on purpose. I think I just, you know, get excited about when the offense starts to click and I start putting more time into that and creating sets off that. I kind of get addicted to that. So, um, and we put a lot of time into defense. I mean, as you know, you've seen, you've seen us play. We like to press the whole game. We're very run and gun. We have some half court traps and things like that. So we work a lot probably more on defense than anything and in, in running the break and transition. So obviously, as we say to every guest, we're the after the timeout podcast. So we, we love to, to talk to people about just during timeouts or after timeouts or so, as we said in the beginning, you know, you came to become a head coach at a very young age. So I'm just curious, you know, if, if you could think back to your first year, kind of take us through how your timeouts were run and then over the years, how have they developed, gotten better, more effective, more organized, uh, or things you've changed just with timeouts? Um, I look back now that I've coached for a few years and I know that my timeout management before was absolutely horrible. You know, when you first start, you think you kind of know things. And then as I got older, I was like, wow, yeah, that was not good. Yeah. Um, so I think like before I focused, like I spent so much of the time out yelling at them about what they did wrong. And as you guys know, like the timeouts go so fast. And if it's a 30 second timeout, it takes these kids 10 seconds to sit down and get their water. And then the refs with 15 seconds left are telling you, get them out, get them out, coach, get them out. So it's like a five second timeout. So I started to kind of realize that spending the 30 seconds yelling at them about what they did wrong. Well, that's great. Now they're going to work hard, but they don't really know what to fix. So I think I've really shifted timeouts as um, just focus more on like trying to draw up sets, fix the issues, show kids where and when to rotate um, and actually try to get something out of it. And then I also would say that I've definitely been better with managing timeouts. You know, when I first started, it, it was like all or nothing. Like there'd be games where I feel like I used all my talents in the first quarter because I kept getting frustrated and I kept calling it like run this, run this. And I felt like every time they did something wrong, I had to like time, take a timeout because they really didn't know how to adjust on the fly. You know, even the good teams, it's difficult for high school kids for you to just say, let's, let's run this. And then to kind of get in place. So I felt like I needed timeout every time. So I'd like burn all my timeouts and then I'd be screwed at the end of the game <laughs> or it'd be the opposite where I'm like, I don't want to waste my timeout for anything. And then I like the end of the game comes and I'm full on. So um, I think I've just gotten better at learning when to take them. And then honestly, like letting kids play through stuff sometimes. And I think that was my problem is I'd get so frustrated because, you know, I, I, I have very high expectations and I'm very, I want to say particular when I coach, you know, I expect a lot out of them. So I think I realized that sometimes, you know, it's okay for them to make mistakes and like play through that and figure it out on their own instead of interrupting them every time they're making a mistake and burning those timeouts. Well, nowadays we have the TV timeout too this year. Yeah. So that and five honestly, minute I hope they keep that because, and it's the 90 seconds makes a huge difference because it really is enough time to, what I've been doing now is before they go get their water, I'm doing like a 30 second timeout, like meet here first. And then you have the rest of the minute to go get your water, do your mass break. Otherwise they're like all over the place. So, you know, it's tough to do that. So yeah, I'm, I'm loving the mass break timeouts. I hope they keep that. <laughs> all right. So at the end of every every episode here, we do a, a top five. 
right? So we thought it'd be fun with you to do the top five games you've played in as a player or coached in as a coach. Could be any combination of games, you know, high school, college, wherever, wherever it may be. Your your top AU even, right? Maybe you went and battled out, you know, some balled out against some team, and you're like, man, this was a game. So your top five. Um, does this have to be an order, or can I? No, just- no, no, no particular order. Any whatever. order doesn't have to be one through five. Just. All right, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to start with playing, and then I'll go maybe to coaching. Um, high school wise, I would say I mean there we had a fun just we had a really good conference when I was in high school. The MSL was really at its peak. I mean it's great now. There's a lot of good teams, but when I was in high school, almost every MSL team had at least a Division One player. I mean, we had like three in our start, every single uh, person in our starting lineup and that, you know, that 09 year, um, we all five played in college and, you know, Elk Grove had like two division one players and BG had five players in their starting lineup that played in college and Hersey and everybody was just so good. It was so competitive. Um, But I think high school, uh, one of my favorite games when I was a sophomore, we played Buffalo Grove to get downstate and we did end up losing that game. So maybe I shouldn't put in my top five, but it was really cool. It was one of those games where, um, you know, it was on TV. They did like that sports casting and our fans were amazing. We had this group of super fans. I mean, John, you know, cause you guys went to Wheeling as you went to Wheeling as well, but uh, we just had a group that was so dedicated. They went everywhere. We had all the guys with their shirts off and they had fat heads. And um, so it was a really cool game because it was packed. I mean, there was people standing on the sidelines, up top, and the bleachers. I mean, there was five plus D1 players on the floor between Buffalo Grove and us. So uh, that was a real. Do you remember this, John? What was the, is that the game where at the end Deneen held the ball for like a minute and a half? It could have been. It was at a neutral site. I can't yeah. remember. It, it might have been Evanston. Yeah, somewhere um, like that. Yeah, and it was when I was a sophomore, and that was yeah. we were, you know, we, we had a really we could have made a, a state run then too, but you know, Buffalo Grove ended up being us. Um, you know, they had the Maki sisters and yep. they were phenomenal players. Um, but it was just so fun just because, you know, it was on TV and it felt like big time and, and uh, so many, so many good players. And then I would say another one, one more that sticks out for me uh, from high school is our uh, final four game against Bolingbrook. Um, you know, when we went down state going into state, I think we were maybe like 31 and one, something like that. We'd only lost to Whitney Young who also made it down state. And at that time, I mean, Bolingbrook, they had Morgan Tuck, who went on to win four national championships with UConn, and she's in the WNBA. So obviously, she's a phenomenal player. They had Ariel Massingale, who went to Tennessee and was a starting point guard at Tennessee. They had uh, another girl who went to U of I, so they were completely stacked, and it was a really, really good game. And again, we lost that. I don't know why my top five games are losses, (laughs) Um, but it was just a fun because it was such a high level of competition, and like I said, we had so many fans in the crowd. They pretty much canceled school that day at Wheeling and they had a send-off parade and like half the school came down and, and was at the stand. So we ended up losing by seven, um, but then Bolingbroke the next night won the championship and they beat Whitney Young by 25. And the next day we played for third place and we beat Geneva by 25. So that kind of felt more like, you know, the state championship to us. So even though we lost, it was just really cool, you know, to play against someone of like Morgan Tuck's caliber and then watch her to go on to be undefeated for four years at UConn. Um, so I would say that I would throw that in there too, which again, I don't know why it shows losses, but um, 
as far as college, uh, I definitely have two games that stand out. These ones are wins. So, <laughs> uh, my first one, when I was a sophomore in college, we played, um, DePaul. Well, if you guys don't know, you know, with girls division three, DePaul is usually ranked top five in the country every year. Um, they were number one in the country when we played them and we played them at home. And they had some kind of crazy statistic that they hadn't lost a home game in like 42 games straight, something crazy like that. And it was to play to get into the Elite Eight, which the Carthage program has never been to an Elite Eight. Um, so, you know, we're playing, it's intimidating. We're playing the number one team in the country on their home floor. And that is a big downfall of D3 that, um, you know, the way that it works with playoffs, it goes by region. So like our region might have the, our, you know, regional might have the number one, five, 10 and 15 team. And then there's some schools on the East or West coast that are getting a cakewalk to the tournament, but it all depends on the area. So we were playing DePaul in the uh, sweet 16 and it was just a really fun close game and they were up for most of it. And there was maybe like 30 seconds left in the game or something. And we were trailing the whole time. And um, you know, my sophomore year, I had much more of a like, true point guard role of passing because we had so many good players like junior year I had much more you know opportunities to score so I, I really wasn't a big scorer my first two years I really were just you know driving kick and there was like 30 seconds left and uh I hit this huge three and I didn't really shoot threes much until my junior year um and so we went up by like one with like 30 seconds left we ended up winning the game it was just this like awesome huge upset um so it was really really fun and then the second one was probably my senior year. Um, we had to play uh, Hope College in the first round as well. And at that, and Hope also, another great Another program. D3 power. Another D3 powerhouse, phenomenal program. And they were also ranked number one. And so my senior year, I think going into that game, we were maybe ranked eight in the country and they were ranked number one. So again, first round of the tournament and you're playing one versus eight in a first round game, you know, top 32. So um, they were undefeated. They hadn't lost all season and we actually got to host them. And uh, it was a really packed game. We ended up winning. We upset them. And um, what was really cool was that uh, we broke an attendance record at Carthage. And as you guys know, it's not often that, you know, girl sports are breaking attendance records. Usually we get a quarter of the fans that the boys are getting. So that was really cool to have, you know, host the number one team in the country and upset them and um, go back to another sweet 16. So that's another one that probably stands out. Um, as far as coaching one more, hmm, this is tough. Uh, we've had some good upsets. We did have a, I, I did have a triple overtime game once um, against Oak Park River Forest. That was pretty fun. But I would say that last year, actually, we had um, a really big upset against Willowbrook, who's in our conference. And you know that, that they're always a tough team. They're well coached. They get good kids. And they had one conference the year before, and they were currently in first place when we played them. And you know we were you know close to last in conference. And uh, we ended up beating them by two points. And it was like a crazy down to the wire buzzer beater type game. And it was probably one of the biggest upsets we've pulled off at my high school. So that was a lot of fun. Well, coach, we, now you got me going through old memories of basketball games, but oh, we let's go. gravely appreciate and dearly appreciate you being on 
Um, we had a lot of fun. Like Todd said in the beginning, we were really looking forward to this episode. Uh, we knew that you would bring some energy and some knowledge and, and I learned a bunch of stuff that I'm going to now steal. Um, but again, we really appreciate you being on today. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. And, you know, I always like to hear you got your episodes and, you know, I could talk basketball for days. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast. For more information and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. You can find all of our episodes on anchor.fm, Spotify, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts by searching After the Timeout. Thank you for listening.